Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, hanging on by my fingernails. With me, as always, is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, doing much the same. As we are about to start speaking on Stuff You Should Know, about fractals. Yay, more math. Theoretical <laughs> math, even. Yeah. A new branch of geometry that's non-Euclidean. Since you brought it up. Okay. Very new. Euclidean geometry was like 300 BC. Yeah. And fractals are 1975. Yep. So there's a little bit of a gap there. There is a little bit of a gap. And uh, there's a lot of animosity among the Euclideans toward fractilians. They need, to, they need to loosen up and look at some of those far out pictures. I know. You know, it's funny. Did you watch? Um, did you watch that one doc on? Yeah. Okay. Did you see the other, the Arthur C. Clarke one? No. Man, it was made in like maybe eighty six, eighty seven, and it had nothing but like um, delicate sound of thunder rip off music <laughs> going on the whole time. It was really, really trippy. Well, I posted a picture. I don't know if you saw today on the stuff you should know all of the uh, of the. Mandelbrot set. It's beautiful. It is, and it's very cool. And I, I didn't even say what it was. I just posted it. Mm-hmm. And like, I'd say about half the people were like, "Very cool, man. This is rad. I love the Mandelbrot set. Like fractals. Talk about fractals." Yeah. And then the other half were like, "Well, you guys tripping out? Like, what is that Grateful Dead day?" Like, <laughs> no, this is actually math. Believe it or not. But it does look very. It's very tie dye in nature, and I oh, think yeah. that's why the hippies like it. Plus, also, I mean, if you've ever. Seen a fractal play out on the computer screen. It's like, pretty trippy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we are talking about fractals. I, I don't necessarily want to give a disclaimer. Chuck and I are not theoretical mathematicians. We're not even like normal mathematicians. <clears throat> I, I balance my checkbook by hand just to keep that little part of my brain going so I don't like forget how to add and subtract I don't even later on that. in life. I, I make myself do that. Yeah. And I don't let myself jump ahead. I show my work. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and that's about the extent of math in my life normally. See, I was the kid in math that when they said you're not allowed to use calculators, I would go like, what? there are calculators in life, so why can't we use them? Yeah. Like, they made calculators so we didn't have to do math. Right, but at the same time, I find that shoddy because it's like you're not, you're not, you're just circumventing learning something. And it's like the calculator's there to support you after you know what you're doing. I disagree. Well, I think this is a pretty prime example of, like, going around to get to the end. Yeah. So when when I was researching this, I was like, oh, okay, well, they don't really know what they're doing with this stuff yet, so we can just totally be like, well, it's, it's anything you want it to be and nothing at all. And then, like, I started looking a little more deeply into it. I'm like, oh, no, they do kind of know what they're doing. So yeah. We really do need to know what we're talking about. So I feel like I have, just from researching this a little bit, um, something of a grasp of what fractals are. Yeah, and, me too, a little bit. Uh, for those of you who, who don't know what we're talking about, like take a second to um, look up, just type in fractal and uh, search images on your favorite search engine, and uh, you'll be like, oh, yes, of course, it's a fractal. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about. Because fractal fractals are a new field, like we said, in geometry, mm-hmm. and they do have use and they have usefulness that I think people haven't even considered yet. Oh, yeah. But the, the stuff that they have figured out how to use it for is pretty amazing stuff. 
Can I say what a fractal is? Yeah. At least so people know. Mm-hmm. This should clear it all up. Uh, it is a geometric shape that is self-similar through infinite iterations in a recursive pattern and through infinite detail. Exactly. So there you have it. Boom. Do we need to even continue? No, but, um, it, and that sounds like really, that put me off. Like, this article was pretty well done by a guy named Craig Haggett. I don't know who that is. Freelancer, I guess. Yeah. Um, it, and it's a pretty well done article, but that a sentence like that can put a person off pretty easy. Sure. And he even put it, you know, he made a joke about it, like, oh, now that you get it, you know, whatever. Right. But um, when you think about it, if you take that apart, one of the hallmarks of fractal fractals mm-hmm. um, is that they are a very complex result from a very simple system. Yeah. And there's like basically three hallmarks to fractals that you just pointed out, right? There is um, self-similarity. Yep. Which is if you if you cut a chunk, a, like a microscopic piece of a fractal mm-hmm. off and compare it to the whole fractal, it's going to be virtually the same. Yeah, like or a fern. And the cool thing about fractals is, is to me, the coolest thing is that fractals... A point they made in the NOVA documentary is that all of our math up until they discovered fractals and described fractals mm-hmm. was based on things that we basically created and built, like all geometry. Right. Euclidean geometry, you have length, yeah. width, and height, with, Wh- which sure. give you the three dimensions, right? Yeah, for like pyramids and buildings a and cube, sidewalks and cone. cubes and all those things. And you, it's extremely useful, and we've done quite a bit with this. But- what Euclidean geometry, as far as the fractal geometrists or geometers um, insist, failed at is when they said, okay, look at that mountain. That's a, a cone. It's an imperfect cone. It's a rough cone. Yeah. But it's a cone shape, right? So, yeah, Euclidean geometry holds sway. What the fractal geometers say is, yeah, it, you could say that it's a cone, but if you tried to measure and describe it as such, you're not going to come up with a very descriptive, a very um, detailed description right. of that mountain. So what, what's the point? What fractal geometry does is it says we're going to describe that mountain in every little crag and peak possible. Right. And uh, so what you have is the fractal dimension, Mm -hmm. which exists in conjunction with length, width, and height. And what the fractal dimension describes is the complexity of the object that exists within those three dimensions as well. That's right. So finishing my point, the cool thing about fractals is that everything that we had done previously in geometry were because of things we built. Fractals help describe things that were have been here since the beginning of time. Yeah. In nature. And one of the truest examples of that is the fern. Right. With self-similarity, you take a little snippet off of a fern, although you shouldn't do that. Let's just look at it. Uh, it's going to look the same as the larger part of the fern and then the whole fern itself. Very self-similar. Right. But not necessarily exact. No, it can be. There is a form of self-similarity that is exact and precise, but in nature that's rare if not just completely not found, right? That's right. So you've got self-similarity, which is the smaller part is virtually the same or looks the same or structured the same as the whole. Um, and this process of self-similarity um, going larger or smaller in scale mm-hmm. is called recursiveness, right? Yeah. And recursiveness is um, like, you know, those paintings where it's like a guy, I think Stephen Colbert, the one that he gave to uh, the Smithsonian has mm-hmm. recursiveness in it, where 
it's a man in a painting standing in front of like a mantle and above the mantle is the painting yeah. that you're looking at. And then it goes on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Anything that's infinitely repeating. Right. Same with if you're in a um, dressing room and there's a mirror on either side of the wall. Yeah. You just keep going on infinitely. It's recursiveness. And with fractals, the recursiveness of self-similarity, right? So there's two two traits, mm-hmm. um, is produced through this thing called iteration. That's right. And that's where you say, here's the whole. Uh, I'm going to put it into this formula. And the formula has uh, has the formula. The output of the formula mm-hmm. produces the input for the next round of that same formula. Yeah, it's a loop. Exactly. So it's self-sustaining, and it can go on infinitely, recursion. Right. That's right. So what we've just come up with is a fractal is anything that has a self-similar structure, mm-hmm. and it's uh, recursive through iteration. That's right. Okay, so um, a really, I, I came upon this kind of easy one, easier explanation of a fractal from uh, Benoit Mandelbrot's site. He died, by the way, in 2010. Yeah, that's sad. He seemed like a pretty good guy. He was definitely thinking different. Yeah. Um, and the way that Mandelbrot described a really easy way to think of a fractal is um, there's this thing called the Sierpinski gasket. Uh-huh. And you take a triangle and you can combine them into a bunch of little triangles and spaces, triangular spaces, yeah. that form a larger triangle, mm-hmm. right? So that that one initial solid triangle is called the initiator. That's the original shape. Right. And then all of those other triangles combine that form that larger triangle or a, a self-similar version of that larger triangle, mm-hmm. the original triangle. That's called a generator, right? So the formula for creating a fractal would be to go into that generator, the version that has all the little smaller triangles Mm -hmm. that make up a larger whole triangle, and say all the ones that look like the initiator, the original just solid black triangle, take that out and swap it with the generator version. Right. And all of a sudden you have one that's exponentially more detailed. There's more to it. And that's a fractal. That's all there is to it. You know what else is a fractal? What? The coastline. Yeah, that was a big one. Uh, Lewis Fry Richardson was an English mathematician, early 20th century, and he very brilliantly said, you know what? If you take a yardstick and you measure the coastline of England, you're going to get a number. If you take a one-foot ruler and measure the coastline, you're going to get a different number. If you take a one-inch ruler and measure the coastline, you're going to get a different number. And it's basically infinite in that the smaller you go with your your unit of measure mm-hmm. or your tool is the larger number you're going to get because the coastline is so infinitely varied in its little nooks and crannies. Right, exactly. So it's a very cool way of thinking about it. There's a second part to that too, Chuck, is that so depending on the, what you're using to measure, the tool you're using to measure, yeah. the number, the perimeter of that coastline could go on infinitely, yeah. but it still contains the same finite amount of space within. It's a paradox. That is a big time paradox because things aren't supposed to be infinite and finite at the same time, right? Right. Um, and uh, Lewis Fry Richardson, he basically established in that, coming up with that paradox, the, this kind of revolution in thought that fractal geometry is based on, that you can have the infinite mixed with the finite. Right. And you can get it from pretty simple 
formulas that create very increasingly complex systems, right? Yeah. Um, and Fry wasn't the f- he wasn't the, he was the f- the first guy to really kind of put forth this idea of thought, but he wasn't the first one to notice this paradox. Yeah, and um, before people even knew there were fractals, there were there were artists like uh, Da Vinci that saw this pattern in tree branches. Yeah. That was um, I know in the Nova documentary and the article they point out the uh, Katsushika mm-hmm. Hokusai, mm-hmm. Uh, 1820 Japanese artist created the Great Wave off Kanagawa, mm-hmm. and uh, those are fractals. It's a it's ocean waves breaking, and at the top of the crest of the waves are little self-similar waves breaking off into smaller and smaller self-similar versions. And that's a natural fractal, or in this yeah. case, it's a depiction of one. So they were, you know, early African and Navajo artists were doing this, and they didn't realize that they were fractals and that there were fractals all around us. No, they just saw uh, crystals in a snowflake are another good one. Yeah, exactly. Um, they were just, they saw that there was, what they were looking at was a repeating pattern that was self-similar and recursive, right? Yeah. That's it. That's a fractal. Right, yeah, and and Benoit uh, Mandelbrot was the first one to say, you know what, we can we can use math equations to actually apply to this, and he was a big star for a while, and then they sort of turned on him, yeah. and said, you know what, this is all cool and trippy looking, but it's useless, right? And he said, oh yeah, screw you guys, watch this, and he wrote another book, which started to. Uh, Give some practical applications, right. which are pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, so th- the whole thing, the whole principle that this is based on um, is that you can take a formula and plug in a very simple, um, uh, well, a, a relatively simple formula, like Mandelbrot's formula. Yeah. We'll take that one, for example. His is um, Z goes to <laughs> Z squared plus C, right? Don't say Z. That's what it's called. If you're in England. Zed. We say Z. Zed. Well, Zed's we're in dead, England. baby. Zed's dead. Anyway, Zed goes to, which is, and the goes to is the key right here. This yeah. is what makes it fractal. Goes to means that um, it's an arrow, it's an equal sign. It looks like an equal sign with an air, part of an arrow pointing towards Zed. Yeah. The other point pointing toward the rest of the formula, which means that the the it, there's that feedback loop where it's like, okay, once you have the number that this punches out, you have uh, you feed it back in and you'll get another number and it'll just keep going and going and going. Right. And every time, remember, you're swapping out the original, the um, initiator, for the, the um, detailed version, the generator. Yeah. And it, it's just getting exponentially more complex with just that one iteration of that very simple formula. That's right. Um, and Mandelbrot set, uh, this is the one that's like, it's probably the most famous one. That's the one that the deadheads like because it's like this crazy juxtaposition between like black and like different colors yeah. and everything. And with his formula, two things happen with a number that you put in. It either goes towards zero or it shoots off to the infinite. Yeah. And what they did for this for the the um, Mandelbrot set fractals was they assigned a color to a number based on how quickly it goes off to, toward infinity, right? right? So let's say that you have like 4. If you plug 4 into this and in 10 generations it'll it, it'll become an infinite number. Right. Um then say that that would be grouped into a blue color, like 10 generations of blue. 
eight generations is red. Ninety generations is orange. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other direction, like say if you put in 4.2 or something like that, it'll go towards zero. Right. And any number that eventually will go towards zero is represented as black. So what you have then is this really intricate, depending on where you're zooming in or out on the fractal, this intricate change of colors. And what you're really just seeing are numbers that are plots on a plane. Yeah. And that's your fractal. And then the black parts are numbers that will eventually be be zero. Right. And most of the Mendel, uh, Mendelbrot set is black. Yeah. But if you zoom in, like that's the whole point. You zoom in on one of those little... Uh, what do we even call those? Little spikes? Uh, I guess you could call it a plot. A plot, and it's going to look like what you just saw. And the, the Nova documentary is very cool when they zoom in on these. Yeah. And it's sort of mind-blowing. Yeah, it is very. I strongly recommend watching that because they explain it way better than us. Well, it helps to see it for sure. Oh, yeah, big time. So, um, Or draw it, as I have done on my papers. I saw that. It's a pretty nice little <laughs> fractal you have there. Yeah. Um, Chuck. Yes. So we've talked about fractals. We talked about the Mandelbrot set. We talked about where they started to come from, um, and the the idea. Remember Lewis Fry Richardson? He was talking about measuring uh, the coastline and going off into the infinite, but still containing right. a finite amount. Um, a guy came after him named Helga von Koch. Yeah, he came up with the Koch snowflake, which is pretty cool. If you take a straight line, mm-hmm. or you take a triangle. And then on uh, each side of the triangle in the middle, you bust out the middle into another triangular hump. Mm-hmm. You do that over and over and over again. It goes off into infinity, although it contains a finite amount of space. The perimeter goes off to the infinite. Right. A guy named uh, Georg Cantor came up with the Cantor set, which is you just take a straight line and you take the middle out of it. And then for each of those two lines that produces, you do the same thing, and it just keeps going on and on. And rather than going to nothingness, like you're like, well, if you take a six-inch line, right. eventually you're going to bust it down in nothingness. Again, that doesn't happen. They found that it goes off to the infinite. So they realized Benoit Mandelbrot was plugging all these into computers because that's what it took. Yeah, sure. People realize this, like Georg Cantor. Um, man, I hope that's how you say his first name. He was de- he was working in the 1880s. Um, Gaston Julia, who came up with the Julia sets for uh, producing a repeating pattern using a feedback loop. All these guys were like 19th century, early 20th century mathematicians. And it was strictly theoretical until the late 70s when guys like Mandelbrot, who worked at IBM, started feeding these things into these newfangled computers right. and seeing the results like this, fractals like the Mandelbrot set that he saw, right? Right. So um, almost immediately... There was a practical use for fractals uh, that came in the form of CGI. Yeah, they interviewed that one guy in the documentary um, who worked on the first CGI shot in motion picture history, yeah. which was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Right. And uh, he was tasked with making uh, a CGI uh, land surface, like mountain range, Pretty, and, pretty mind-blowing, wasn't it? Yeah, and he did. I mean, now you look back and it kind of looks silly, but at the time it was completely revolutionary. And once he learned about fractals and the geometry and the math of fractals, it was pretty easy for him. Yeah. I mean, he made it seem like, he was like, oh, well, this is the key. This is how you do it. Right. So, well, and it is kind of easy, especially if you know what you're doing with computer programming and math, 
Because what you're basically doing to create a fractal generator is teaching your computer to ex- to do something within a certain formula. That's yeah. your fractal formula, right? And so what Lauren Carpenter, the guy who created the um, the Star Trek II landscape for the first CG, all CGI shot ever. Yeah. What he basically did was created a computer program that said, hey, computer, I'm going to give you a bunch of triangles because I think that was the earliest stuff he was working with. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you a bunch of triangles, and I want you to take those triangles and uh, generate a new fractal set from it, right? Mm-hmm. And then I want you to do it again and again and again. And then every third time, I want you to start turning them 40 degrees. So that's going to change the the pattern slightly. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you have all these infinite variations. The reason why, when you go back and look at that shot, that it still looks kind of, you know, today. Yeah. Is because the computer he was working at didn't have the computing power to do that many times. Yeah, sure. Now we have higher computer computing power, and so what we're doing is telling our computers to keep going and going and going, swapping out that initiator, that one single black triangle, uh-huh. everywhere it can find it in this pattern, this pattern of triangles in the fractal, with a brand new fractal. So it's just creating more and more and more and more fractals, which creates a finer and finer and finer resolution, which makes something look all the more realistic. Yeah, like the part in the uh, doc about the the Star Wars when yeah. the guy was making the lava splashing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yes, it was because they they showed the first one that he did. It looks kind of plain, right? And then once you fed it through this infinite feedback loop, it just like shattered and 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 uh, fractured, not fractaled. Although I want to say fractaled off, and just looked more detailed, more detailed, more detailed until it looked like lava splashing. Right, it's pretty amazing. Well, that's where the word fractal comes from. Is um, Mandelbrot coined it in 1975 to say uh, to indicate how the things fracture off and they form irregular patterns. Um, you can create a fractal that that is regularly repeating, but it doesn't look as natural in. With, like, say, if you're creating lava, right. you, you've got to have that one rule that, like, every third generation it yeah. kicks 40 degrees or whatever the rule is mm-hmm. that just kind of throws a little bit of dissimilarity into it because if something's too self-similar, it's not going to look right. It's not going to look natural. It's not going to look real. Right. Which kind of leads you to think, Chuck, then, that there is a an application for studying natural phenomenon using fractals, right? Well, there are. I, I guess so. All kinds. Um, well, this isn't so much natural, but uh, the the documentary interviewed Nathan Cohen, mm-hmm. who was a ham radio operator, and his landlord said, dude, you can't have that huge antenna hanging out of your apartment. Right. So he started bending wires, a straight wire, into essentially a fractal and found that on the very first go, it got better reception. Um Merely by the, the the fact that it was bent in that way, right? And it was self similar. So he uh, eventually uh, used that to, I hope, make a lot of money. I got the impression that he did. Okay, um, by applying that technology to cell phones, um, and the way that they describe it is all the different things a cell phone can do. If you were to have a different antenna for each one of those functions, mm-hmm. it would be like carrying around a little porcupine. Yeah. So what uh, cell phones now are based on is. Uh, a fractal design called uh, Minger Sponge. Minger Sponge? Uh, yeah, I think Minger. And uh, it's basically a box fractal, and if you 
crack open your little cell phone, you're going to see it wired that way. Yeah, you're going to be looking at a fractal. It's a square, mm-hmm. right? And then within it are a bunch of little squares mm-hmm. in a recursive, self-similar pattern. And you, friend, are looking at a fractal. It's all around us. Yeah. Um, it's also all around us in nature. There's, uh, in that same uh, documentary, that NOVA program, mm-hmm. there was a team from, I think, University of Arizona. There was a team of academics. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Who um, were trying to figure out if you could predict the amount of carbon capturing capacity an entire rainforest has just by measuring um, and figuring out this self-similar system that a single tree in that rainforest yeah. um, has. It makes sense. Well, it does, but it's kind of a leap. It's like, oh, okay, so is one tree, does it follow the same system that the whole rainforest does? And they apparently found that, yes, in fact, it does, right? Yeah. The same branching uh, system found in that tree is similar to the the growth of the trees in the rainforest as a whole. Pretty cool. Yes. Um, tumors in the human body. Yeah. Uh, one of the keys to getting rid of, of cancer is, or, or any kind of tumor, is spotting these tumors early on. Mm-hmm. But with our ultrasound technology, you can only get so small and so detailed uh, that you can't see some of these natural fractals that, you know, your blood vessels are fractals, essentially, yeah. just like the branches of a tree are. Um, so they have, are now using uh, geometry to, now, if I'm not sure if I got this right, but I think it shows up. It shows the flow of the blood because the ultrasound can pick that up through these fractals when mm-hmm. they can't even pick up the vessels themselves. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Early, earlier tumor spotting. Which right. Is well, great. for all intents and purposes, they're looking at the vessels by finding the blood because they see yeah. where it's flowing. But yeah, depending on the sh- the pattern that it follows, if it follows like an, an like a tree branching shape, right? It's healthy, right? Yeah. And then the tumor is all. The veins are all bent and crooking, going in all crazy directions. The readout of a heartbeat? Yeah. It's not consistent. It's a fractal. Yeah. So they use fractal analysis now to study your heart rate and uh, use that to better understand how arrhythmia happens through math. So there's, the especially with natural systems, that's kind of like the biggest contribution that um, fractal geometry has produced so far, I think. Um, aside from CGI. Is what medical? Uh... Well, just the that whole understanding that was first really kind of um, voiced by Lewis Fry Richardson with the coastline, that there's um, there are natural systems out there that we can't really, f- that we're not quite paying attention to. Right. We don't really know how to deal with, that we're trying to apply something like Euclidean geometry to something that you can't really use that for. Right. Um, that that's what fractal geometry has really contributed so far is to basically say, hey, there's a lot of natural systems out here that are self-similar and recursive. And now that we kind of see in the fractal world, we see them everywhere and we have a better understanding of them. One of the best uh, examples of that, I thought, was figuring out how larger animals use less energy than smaller animals. They use energy more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a kind of a biological paradox for a l- really long time. And these guys figured it out using, I guess, kind of the um, same kind of insight that fractal geometry has, that if you take genes, and genes are the mathematical formula uh, or the equivalent of a mathematical formula, and you uh, 
feed in uh, these genetic processes, what it's going to put out is this self-similar recursive pattern to where the bigger the organism is, the more this thing goes and goes and goes, the less energy it's going to use because there's more of it, and it doesn't require very much energy to produce past a certain point. So if you have a very small animal, it's using a lot of energy to do these things, to carry this out. Yeah. But there's that economy of scale because you're still using a relatively simple formula, your genetic code, right, mm-hmm. um, to carry out a very complex, seemingly complex um, system, which is your organs or you as an organism. Right. So in the end, an elephant uses less energy than a mouse. Yes, because they're both using the same formula, the same input. And then eventually you reach a point where it just gets easier and easier and easier. Crazy. To to use something simple to create a complex system. I love it. I do too. Uh, I got one more thing. You heard of this guy, Jason Padgett? Huh. This is pretty crazy. Um, this guy, uh, like nine years ago, I think, um, was mugged in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. Got hit in the back of the head really hard, uh, knocked him out, and he acquired... Um, a form of synesthesia in which he sees fractals wow. from being hit in the head. Jeez. And um, basically it's an acquired savant uh, savantism, which is pretty rare to acquire this later on. Um, and this guy hated math, and his family used to make fun of him, he said, because he was the worst at Pictionary. Uh, couldn't draw a thing, couldn't draw a lick. Now this guy can draw reportedly mathematically correct fractals by hand. Wow. And he's the only person on earth that can do this. Holy cow. And you should see these things. They're like, you know, a huge, you know, two by two fractal that looks like it was plotted by like a supercomputer. And this guy does these by hand now out of nowhere because he got hit on the head. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. He got hit in the fractal center, huh? He did. That's strange that we would have like that ability latent in us, you know? Yeah, well, they studied his brain, of course, um, and they found that the two areas that lit up in the left hemisphere were the areas that control exact math and mental imagery. So there you have it. Wow. And he's, you know, he's fine with it. Although he says that he's a bit obsessive about it because he's, it's one of those deals where everywhere he looks now he sees fractals. Oh, yeah. Well, I got the impression that people who are, who are fractal geometers have the same thing. Yeah. You know, they're like, look at that cloud. I, I, I can figure out how to describe it completely. Yeah, with math. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, and then it's everywhere. Canopies of the trees. Like, I got that impression as well, that once you yeah. start seeing fractals in natural systems, like, then everything becomes um, fractals and a lot simpler to well, understand. I realized today that I have always doodled in fractals. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because I can't really draw. So whenever I doodle, it's like, it's always been... Um, little fractal shapes. Like mm-hmm. I would draw some kind of geometric shape then split off from that and make it smaller. And in the end, they're sort of like fractals. Well, your fractal tree that you showed me was pretty awesome. <laughs> so you got anything else? Uh, no. I would strongly urge you to read this article a few more times and then maybe go off and read some more about fractals because we definitely have not covered all of it. I watched that Nova documentary. Yeah. It's good stuff. Uh, what is it? Chasing the Hidden Dimension? <laughs> yeah. Is that what it's called? They should call it Chasing the Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the Dragon Curve Fractal. It's pretty boss. That's right. It is boss. Um, 
So you want to type fractals in the search bar howstuffworks.com to start, and that will bring up this very very good article. Uh, and I said search bar, which means it's time for listener mail. Josh, I'm going to call this uh, Don't Eat Your Peanuts Around Me, Jerk. Yeah. Remember when the air traffic control uh, remarked that I never heard the announcement that uh, no one can eat peanuts on the plane? Yeah. I've flown a lot in my life. Yeah. And I've never heard that before. Yeah. So Ian Hammer writes in, uh, on the air traffic control episode, you were talking about peanuts being completely absent on some flights. And as a person that is really allergic to peanuts, I can shed some light. Uh, my allergy is bad enough to where the smell of peanuts, which is really just the presence of peanut molecules in the air, yeah. will cause me to get itchy and swollen. Uh, in the case that I am in contact with a peanut, I have the superpower of becoming a balloon, and I'll swell up to the point where I will be dead in a matter of minutes. Jeez. Uh, I can delay the anaphylactic shock for 10 minutes, give or take, with an injection of epinephrine, and this will only work twice. Like I twice guess. in his life? I think so. Jeez. Um, if I do have a reaction, I have 20 minutes plus the 15 minutes I have before normal anaphylactic shock would kill me. Uh, there really isn't a way to save me in that instance unless I can be administered the proper treatment uh, that you can get only at a hospital. As you can imagine, when a plane is at 30,000 feet, there's not much can be done to get me to a hospital within that 35-minute time frame. Uh, so flying can be a pretty scary thing when someone near you decides that they really want a peanut butter cup. Uh, people do this sometimes, and it's a real pain to have to deal with. I uh, just wanted to give you guys an overview of peanut allergy sufferers uh, when it comes to flying. Keep up the incredible work. Look forward to seeing the TV pilot, Ian Hammer. So, Incredible is right. If we were uh, insensitive to that, then all apologies. He didn't indicate that. but I No, think we weren't. I, I just we, remember you being... You were just surprised. Yeah, I was surprised. But, was and I knew allergies could get bad, but man, that I think on the plane I was like, what? I've known about this since I saw an episode of Freaks and Geeks wherein one of the characters almost died because, like, some bully at school, like, gave him some peanuts. Oh, yeah. Was that, uh, it was the, Martin Starr? The character? The analog to Paul from Wonder Years. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Which was, um, I can't remember his name. I love Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Allergies. How about a fractal story? Yeah. If you know something about fractals that we don't, or can correct us, or explain it better than we did, which I'm not sure that that's much of a long shot, um, we want to hear about it. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can visit us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know, or send us an email at StuffPodcast at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?